Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we're going to be talking about two short films from the director David Lynch. First up, we have the 1967 film Six Men Getting Sick Six Times. A countdown appears. Five, four, three, two, one. Five figures on the screen. Three on the left are static. Two on the right are animating. Lines from their mouths forming a sixth figure. Their stomachs appear, turn red. The background turns purple. Streams of vomit erupt from their mouths. A siren sounds over the scene. It repeats six times. The second film we're going to be talking about is the 1970s short, The Grandmother. Two people grow out of the ground, a father and a mother. The two, still half in dirt, embrace and create a son, who also grows out of the ground. The parents make animal noises, and the father crawls over to attack and menace the son. The three are shown in a house with sparse furnishings and black walls. The son wets a bed and is attacked by the father, who rubs his face in the mess and holds him over it. Later, the mother tries to fix the boy's hair. When he pulls away from her, she grabs him forcefully and begins convulsing as he escapes. The son wanders through the house and comes upon a room with a bed and a bag labeled seeds. He selects a particular one, places it in a mound of dirt on the bed, and waters it. The seed grows into a giant root, and from the root is born the grandmother. The son continues to be tormented by his parents, but finds comfort in the grandmother. One day, the grandmother is choking, and the son runs to his parents for help, who instead mock him. The grandmother dies. The boy lays in bed, staring at the ceiling. He turns over, and a great root grows from him. So, Monica, uh, thoughts on these two shorts? What was your first impression? Well, the first one, and I think you mentioned this in your notes, seemed a lot just like a painting that happened to move. Um, And the second one, my reaction was, this is so, so, so sad. Sad, perhaps mixed with with horrifying or... (laughs) Yes, I think the sad part was the part that was a little bit surprising to me, though. I didn't. Yeah, I wasn't like I've said before, I don't read into movies before I watch them. I just went in and watched it and I'm like, oh, this is another ring style video. But um, it turned out to be very sad. Yeah. Well, that's I think that's an interesting point, because some of the more uh, surrealist pieces we've looked at before. Uh, on this podcast have been kind of very much focused on the form. Um, and we haven't talked about them much in the context of like being tragic or, or joyful or whatever the emotion should be. 
So first off, just to get started, I, I want to emphasize that uh, David Lynch is one of my favorite filmmakers, so I'm kind of going to ooze with praise over these two films. So if you don't like David Lynch, bear with us. I think we'll still be talking about some stuff. I think this will still hopefully be an edifying listening experience, but let's get right into it. So first off, some background information on David Lynch. The film critic Pauline Kael referred to him as being the first popular surrealist, which I think is a is a really excellent characterization of him. He's still very much in kind of the underground of filmmaking, but he does get referenced a lot. And I think he's kind of the go-to director when people discuss like WTF films or really, you know, really bizarre films that we've seen like his stuff will almost always appear his debut feature length was Eraserhead which came out in 1977 and did very well on kind of the the midnight circuit in film theaters uh it was kind of um it's actually quite similar i think to uh at least the grandmother to that short that we're discussing today because of the success that eraser had had he was able to go on to direct elephant man which was a kind of biopic of uh joseph merrick and after that he was able to get kind of the more uh, high-budget featured Dune, the adaptation of the Frank Herbert novel. Uh, That, unfortunately, did not do as well. I think by today's standards, it wouldn't be seen as a huge flop, but it didn't make back its initial budget. As a result, the following picture he did, Blue Velvet, had a uh, considerably smaller budget. I believe for Dune, he had about $40 million, and Blue Velvet, he made for about $8 million. I think a lot of people listening might know him uh, most from the television series Twin Peaks, which ran for two seasons in the early 90s and recently in 2017 had a continuation on Showtime, if I'm not mistaken. And so that's kind of, that's a really interesting series. I highly recommend people check it out um, if you haven't. It's really wonderful, but it's kind of the, um, combination of his like surrealist aesthetic with a a more melodramatic like kind of series of small town stories it's really wonderful he did that series he co-wrote that with mark frost one of the more interesting things about him is that he is very famously tight-lipped on the significance or the the supposed meaning of his films He doesn't do that many interviews anymore, I don't believe. And he tends to shy away from questions about, like, what exactly does this film mean? What what was happening? He doesn't tend to like to answer those. Uh, I've got a couple of quotes from him. So first off, he said, quote, A film or a painting, each thing is its own sort of language, and it's not right to try to say the same thing in words. Uh, And also in an interview to The Guardian, he said, I need to know for myself what things mean and what's going on. Sometimes I get ideas and I don't know exactly what they mean. So I think about it and try to figure it out. So I have answers for myself. Um, Something that I know that you and I have discussed before is how sometimes if you have an artist who's really gifted in one medium, if you ask them to explain it, a lot of times they don't come off maybe that 
intelligent or they don't come off that gifted because giving an interview is not is not what they do. What they do is write music or make movies or whatever it is. So I just think that that's an, like that's another good reason to never talk about anything you've ever made. uh i i mean i think that's a really excellent example i know in this podcast we've kind of discussed before i think more when we were talking about eisenstein and the idea of montage and kind of editing and the language of film i think language is really uh the key word there and i think it's very interesting this idea that the film itself is the communication. The film itself is the communication of the message. And also, I mean, we have, you know, kind of death of the author, the idea that that an author is not, I suppose, a, a, any more authoritative on the message of their work than anyone else, right? Which is kind of the wonderful thing about films, because I think even this podcast, I don't know that I would really be interested in doing it if all we had to do was look up a couple of paragraphs from the director explaining exactly what they meant. That's not very interesting. Why bother making the film when you could just, you know, write out a little statement, right? Right. And I think, as you have mentioned many times, once the work is finished, it's finished. What the art, what the artist says doesn't really matter, right? If it mattered, they would have put it in there. Right, which I think is um, is something we we come into a lot with uh, certain people like J.K. Rowling, um, mm-hmm. who in various ways have, have tried to reimagine their previous work for one reason or another. J.K. Rowling, who is... Uh, at this point really known for being a notorious transphobe and kind of kind of falling apart on Twitter, you know, I really enjoy the Harry Potter series. I really I really liked reading it. I liked the the movies and everything. But I know when she started adding information about different characters or different events in the universe that weren't depicted in kind of the core material, I was, I was always a little irritated because like, well, like you said, if that was so important, why not encode it in that, in the work? Or even, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast before, um, when Spielberg edited uh, E.T. to get rid of the guns. And I mean, it's not like, obviously creators, anybody can change their minds. And I guess you can do anything you want with your own work. But I think there's something to letting the work speak for itself. And then you can reflect your own changed attitudes in later work that you produce. Right. Or even with that same example, if he wants to change guns into walkie talkies or if George Lucas wants to reimagine episodes four through six of Star Wars with new CG, that's fine by me. But it's really bizarre the tendency to try and control the entirety of the work, right? So making it so that the original trilogy as shown in theaters is not available, making it so that you can't see the version of E.T. that has, you know, the cops with their their rifles. It's fine to iterate on your own work, but it's bizarre to try and control it and, and manipulate it after it's been released. And also just uh, real quick on this point, I did want to emphasize that second quote when Lynch was talking about how he needs to have a meaning to his own work. I think that's a really great quote because in some ways it seems to contradict the idea that like film is its own language and like you can't say it in words because, well, you know, the director seems to have an idea of what this all means. 
but like you said, perhaps he is not the most gifted orator or or this message would not be as compelling when delivered by him kind of flatly. Even if you watch one of his films and you don't take that much from it, it did have significance for him. One of the easier and lazier criticisms of abstract art is that, oh, it's not, it's insignificant, nothing means anything. And I think it it almost universally does at the very least to its creator so it has some significance from the start monica i was i was actually wondering if you've seen any of david lynch's films before this and kind of whether uh whether you have or you haven't what's kind of your general take on him whether from other films or even just from from kind of the two that we watched uh for this episode these are my first Lynch films that I've seen, but I remember you being a fan from way, way back, and you've been very excited about doing this episode. I don't really feel like two shorts are enough exposure for me to form my own opinion about him, but I did wonder what is it that draws you so much to his work as a whole? It's hard to say because I think every every piece is very different and a lot of David Lynch fans will kind of talk about him in terms of like work during and before the original Twin Peaks television run and then his work afterwards, which got kind of considerably darker in many ways. I was very excited to do this episode, but I was also a little bit nervous because I think he's a really excellent example of a director whose films I love to be sucked into and have a very hard time discussing. So this will this will really be an interesting test run. It's just there's something about the worlds he creates that are like enchanting, but a Above all else, frightening. I'm a big fan of horror. I love tons of horror movies. David Lynch isn't often discussed in terms of like being a horror director, but I don't know that there's another filmmaker that scares me as much as he does. And I think that might be the main thing that attracts me to his work. Okay, so let's get down into the nitty-gritty of production. So first off, the first film we discussed, Six Men Getting Sick Six Times. Is by Dr. Seuss, apparently. (laughs) I think it's very fun to say and very difficult to remember. This was a, a film that he made while he was at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, and he made it with Jack Fisk, uh, who has become a name in his own right as a production designer, uh, who notably has worked with uh, Brian De Palma on, I think, a couple of films, definitely on on his Phantom of the Paradise. And he's also collaborated with Terrence Malick on Badlands and Tree of Life, and I believe several others as well. Jack Fisk has, has done a tremendous amount of work as well, and, and, and his work is really astounding. So this film, basically, uh, as, as you had mentioned earlier, Monica, started out with the idea of, of David Lynch wanting to have essentially a moving painting from what i understand the idea was initially to have a projector onto a canvas uh but that that wasn't ultimately how the film turned out so basically what happened is that david lynch invited jack fisk over and they went to his garage and he set up a six by ten canvas on the wall and they had a camera and he kind of 
live action animated all these pieces on the canvas. Ultimately, he showed it, I believe, at at, uh, some sort of function for the Academy of the Fine Arts. And another student who was uh, relatively wealthy from what I read uh, commissioned him to make another short film because he wanted it for his uh, private collection. So David wow. Lynch, <laughs> I, I know, right? Like, where can I meet these people? <laughs> <laughs> they're students, but they're just there to like collect other students' work. That's so funny. <laughs> I do kind of wonder how many of these types you, you find at bougie, fancy art schools, you know? <laughs> So David Lynch got to work on on doing that. He used the money he got to buy a Bolex, which is a kind of rudimentary 60 millimeter camera. I shot one film in college on this camera and it's really wonderful. So you can adapt it. So essentially you can hand crank it like they did in, in silent films, or you can crank it in advance and run it for, uh, I believe about 80 seconds. It can run by itself. So he bought he bought a Bullocks with these funds and apparently went out and shot something. And then when he got the film back, so this is back before digital, this is when you have to shoot things and then send them out um, to be processed. And then you get the footage back. When he got the footage back, it turned out there was some kind of problem with the camera, uh, something with like the lens he was using. Anyway, he got like no usable footage. And so he had to go back and tell his his financier, I suppose, the bad news. And the financier told him that like, oh, no big deal. Just like kind of go back at it uh, and just make something shorter. And so that's uh, where we got the short film The Alphabet, which I think is um, is a very interesting. Monica, if you have the chance, if you like this at all, it's worth checking out. It's maybe like three minutes long, three and a half minutes long. And it's a very interesting midpoint between Six Men and The Grandmother. So anyway, so he created this film, The Alphabet, and sent it to AFI, the American Film Institute, along with a copy of the screenplay he had written for The Grandmother. And they were apparently very excited and gave him, I believe, like either $5,000 or I think it was $5,000 up front and then $7,200 eventually to cover the full cost of the film. The grandmother would be uh, the first time he was working with sound designer Alan Splett, who worked with him on all of his features up through Blue Velvet. A little piece of trivia about Alan Splett, uh, he was actually nominated for an Oscar for the film The Black Stallion, which came out in 1979. And during the uh, 1980 Oscar ceremony, he actually wasn't in attendance because he was in Europe working on David Lynch's uh, film The Elephant Man. And so Johnny Carson was hosting, and apparently the the award show was I don't know if you pay attention to award shows can kind of be a drag, and so apparently it wasn't it wasn't super exciting, and so Johnny Carson kind of made a bit out of Alan Splett not being there, um, partially out of you know making the joke out of Alan Splett being kind of a no name, and then he constructed this theory about like oh alan like took the wrong exit and now he's going off to this place and they gave alan splat updates throughout the award show <laughs> um so that's kind of strangely that's what he's most famous for but like his his work as a sound designer is incredibly impressive I'd like to get into some of the uh, some of the techniques employed here. So first off, what I thought was really interesting was kind of the use of like multi or multiple media in 
both of the shorts that we saw. So in Six Men, obviously with the piece starting out as the idea of being kind of this moving painting, uh, we have kind of the combination of like the canvas and the motion, right? So it can be viewed as either like a film proper or as a collection of individual paintings. You know, it's like if you're watching it on your your DVD or whatever, you can literally pause and look at it as you would uh, in an art gallery. And then we go to the grandmother, which I think has kind of a more literal interpretation of multiple media in that it combines the cutout in animation that we had previously seen in Harry Everett Smith's film, uh, Heaven and Earth Magic, along with stop-motion animation of the human actors, right? So kind of having actors stand in a certain way, you take an individual shot, have them stand in another way, take an individual shot, put it together and create the illusion of motion. And both of these combined with kind of more standard, like 24 frames per second live-action shooting. So I was wondering... If you could think of other films or works of art that use kind of like multiple different techniques, multiple kind of forms of media that left an impression on you and kind of what you thought of of the effects there and what you thought of the effects in these short films and particularly in The Grandmother. Well, the first film that we did in this month of shorts was A Trip to the Moon, that very early uh, silent picture and in that they blended I mean it was mostly live action um, but they had that part uh, that was animated when the ship comes back to earth from the moon and lands in the uh, in the sea or the ocean in that film I thought especially because I watched the colored version which as we discussed to make the colored version, they had hand-painted everything. I thought, and and also just because of the overall design of the film, I felt like the two techniques blended really, really well. It was pretty seamless. I mean, I did notice the animation, but it didn't, it wasn't like a jarring kind of like SpongeBob SquarePants situation where you suddenly have like a clip of like a real life person, in the, <laughs> which of course, I mean, that's on purpose, but you know what I mean, right? Right. <laughs> um, you know, other than that, I obviously think a lot about newer films that use a lot of CG plus live action or traditional animation that gets combined with um, CG Early examples would be like Aladdin, right? When he's on the carpet escaping the Cave of Wonders and the carpet itself that was CG animated, stuff like that. In The Grandmother, I felt like the effect was very unnerving because the distinction between the techniques was obvious as opposed to Trip to the Moon or, you know, CG and live action, that kind of stuff. Well done, CG and live action, I should say. Um, I'm glad you bring up um, the CG. Uh, I know we hammer on Marvel films a lot, but I'm going to keep doing it until they quit making them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think it, in you know something like Thor, right, we're going to see a lot of CG. And the idea, the kind of organizing principle behind that film is that the CG is going to be uh, uh, absolutely and like perfectly fused with the live action. We're going to imagine them jointly as part of the same physical world. And like you said here, there's not really an attempt 
to do that, right? Like it's it's very odd because there is shot to shot continuity between like a live action sequence and then the cutout. But it does make you wonder like precisely what exactly is happening because there's, um, I didn't mention in the synopsis because it's kind of hard to work scenes like this into a synopsis. But at one point when uh, the son, the, the protagonist of the film is going up to visit the grandmother, uh, his his dad is trying to stop him and like grabbing at his leg, and his mom is there too, kind of in a, a joint effort. And it cuts to an animated sequence where the son decapitates the father and then crushes the mother with like a boulder or something like that. And then the next scene, the next scene we get is him in the room with the grandmother. And later on in the film, the parents are untouched. And so we're kind of, you know, if you look at just that section, you're led to believe that the animated world is in some ways like just this kind of fantasy manifestation of of the little boy's psyche. Uh, But when we look at the beginning of the film, when the two, um, you know, when essentially the the three are are like hatched from the earth, we have the animated sequence of, um, I suppose, the, the father's sperm and the mother's egg going to create the root that creates the boy. And we see that in that same cutout animation, but like that carries over into the live action. We are to understand that they, that was sequential. This, you know, this happened in that order. So it does, it's, it's very hard to say, like you were saying, it seems like the film itself, uh, scene to scene is hostile. And I think that's just so, that's so great. That's such a great way of like, you know, watching something and just, just like feeling attacked on all ends by it. Next up, I'd like to discuss the mise-en-scene of the second film today, The Grandmother. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, mise-en-scene is a filmic term uh, that was developed essentially to describe everything you're looking at in a frame of a film. So this applies to the set design, the costuming, the lighting, the props, the actors, the blocking, all of these things. That's the mise-en-scene, the entire contents of the scene. So I was really, I think, watching this, I was really struck by all the work that went into that in this film. So the as I had mentioned at the top with the synopsis, that the house that the family occupies is very sparsely decorated. So we get just enough of it to identify it as kind of 50s uh, suburban Americana. So we have uh, the mother in, in kind of a 50s dress sitting in a kitchen and we we have just enough of the kitchen to specifically identify it as a kitchen right so we have a stove and a chair and a table and then also the bedrooms we basically just have a bed and like a, a dresser right and and that's about it and all the walls in the film are painted black so the entire thing feels very much like a void and i think this 
really capitalizes on the costume design, particularly the costume design of the son, who is wearing a kind of a suit and tie. I think it's um I think it's a bow tie, but he's very formally dressed. And his suit, it's a, a black slacks, black jacket. And so for huge chunks of the film, in some ways when we're watching him, we're kind of seeing a disembodied head and a pair of hands, right? Like his actual form is really disguised by the black walls. One famous quote by David Lynch when he was talking about the use of kind of black and white versus color, quote, black has depth. You can go into it. I was wondering, Monica, what you thought of the film's actually quite limited color palette because there are scenes that are technically in color uh but it's very it's very kind of difficult to distinguish anything that looks colorful and there are also certain shots that he uses that that are just black and white so i was wondering what you thought of his his choice of color palette and kind of that that quote about black having depth what what do you make of that I think it has depth because it's dark. So there are infinite possibilities for what might lie within it that we just can't see. As you mentioned, for example, the kid's wearing almost like a tuxedo kind of outfit. And so his form is largely obscured by that. So you can kind of see something that's lying within that darkness. And you can imagine what else might be in there. And I also think that the darkness and then just the limited color palette makes everything scarier. <laughs> that is that is absolutely true. Um, something I neglected to mention also is that for I think just about every scene of the film, uh, the little boy, he has clearly a lot of makeup on, like kind of a lot of powder to make him look. They all do. They're all super, super white. Do they? I so I noticed it on the sun. The parents also have that, like all that that powdery look. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Very, very white. So I was wondering what what you made of that because I know also I don't think it was in every scene, but the sun had um, red lipstick on for chunks of this. I was kind of wondering what you made of that because again, in a, in a film that's so devoid of color, it's interesting to have like his his lips stand out in that way. Well, maybe this is what you were getting at, but the whiteness of their skin helps them contrast with the the black with the darkness um so you can see them better. And maybe the lipstick is also used to that effect. I mean, just the way that you use stage makeup to make your the facial expressions of the actors more obvious from a distance. You can also use it in film to accentuate facial expression. You also see it, by the way, in advertisements in places where you're they're not necessarily advertising lipstick and they'll even use it on men. But it's just for the sake of accentuating um something so that it doesn't get lost in the photography right it's uh in some ways it's very similar to um the makeup work that was 
done in um, a previous film we covered, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm-hmm. Um, although I, I, I guess I'm no expert, but it does seem a lot more kind of like one note, one tone, like white face, red lips. We were talking earlier about the internal conflict, the internal tension of the live action sequences with the cut and paste animated sequences. I was wondering if if some of the makeup might not be a technique or a method of communicating a certain continuity between the live action and the animated because uh, the animation is so again, like surreal and kind of two note, right? Black and white. And it's really interesting that we get these live action sequences that while they feel very different and very jarring, they still aesthetically kind of smoothly move in. That makes sense. If you cake the makeup on so much that it almost looks like a mask that erodes a little bit the realism and maybe makes the actors blend a little bit more with the stop motion and the cutout. Okay, so let's get into some of the themes of the film. So uh, the one that I, I think stands out the most in both of these films is kind of the element of body horror. Body horror was a a term, I'm not sure exactly when it was coined, but it didn't start getting used more heavily until the 80s, primarily in the context of uh, another favorite director of mine, David Cronenberg, who's um, most famous for The Fly. He also did Videodrome and Scanners, which... Do you like these guys just because they have the same name as you? I do. That is the entire reason I looked into them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Cronenberg also did uh, uh, Scanners, which even if you haven't seen the film, certainly you've seen the gif online of the man whose head explodes. Uh, that's taken from scanners and is a really kind of a really good example of the idea of body horror. The idea that like psychological ailments or other tensions become uh, physically and visually manifest in the human body. Uh, and I think we have a lot of that going on here. So the six men getting sick. Uh, obviously they, you know, the figures appear and we're kind of privy to, to the, the elaborate construction of one of them. And then we see them in kind of distress, like, uh, gastronomic distress, I suppose. Ga- ga- gastronomic distress. Yeah. Like- that sounds like culinary distress. Well, it is. Ga- gastrointestinal gastrointest- distress, maybe? No, gastronomic. I'm sticking with it. They ate something okay. bad. <laughs> well, yeah, but the, you would call that gastrointestinal, not gastronomic. I'm going with gastronomic. So their gastronomic distress, I'm cutting out all those things you said. Gastronomic <laughs> distress. <laughs> Okay, guys, you, uh, you know where to send the comments. <laughs> so, um... They're gastrointestinal distress. So we're kind of, we know very little about these six figures other than they become sick to the stomach and then vomit, right? Which is kind of an interesting uh, first film, an interesting prelude to the rest of Lynch's work. And I think here we get, in The Grandmother, we get a lot of the same visuals. So first off, we have the people 
growing out of the ground in this kind of a, a, a mockery of, I suppose, like the natural human process. It's it's something that is natural, but is not natural to humans. Humans don't grow out of the ground. So it's kind of, you know, like terrifying in that way. Uh, and then we also get the extended sequence where the boy is growing the root that gives birth to his grandmother, whom he literally essentially like pulls out of the womb that is the root that he grew, which is, is very kind of upsetting sequence and, and, and really just looks messy. There's, there's one part. And now I think it was the part where she's first coming out where you see her shoes, I guess her feet sticking out of the dirt. And it reminded me of wizard of, wizard Oz, of Oz where the house falls on the wicked witch of the, was it the West or the East? Which one got killed first? I don't know. One of them. The one of the wicked witches. The bad one. <laughs> the, well, they were both bad. Her, but it was her sister who was all pissed off, right? Was that? I haven't seen that movie in forever. The 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 house falls on one of the wicked witches. The other wicked witch is like, "Hey, this house fell on my sister. What are you going to do about it?" <laughs> and and then and then you have a movie. And then Glinda is the good witch. I haven't seen that movie in probably like twenty something years, and I remember. I don't have fond memories of that film. It's terrifying. Oh, it was scary too to me too. Yeah, those <laughs> those, those monkey things. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm really glad you brought that up because I have very little memory of that film. But that is the first thing I thought when I saw that that image. Oh, right? that's great! <laughs> so I think that had to have been deliberate. As, as we were talking about body horror, what I guess what was your personal response watching this? Well, in terms of the f- the first film, the six men getting sick six times, um, it was less horrifying because that film was so much like a painting that, you know, it's like looking at a, at a, I don't know, a dolly or something like that. But since the grandmother is, has, you know, actual actors in it, you feel the horror a lot more. I mean, the initial reaction is horror and then... The next reaction for me is just the realization that it's an outward manifestation of the child's emotions, right? And what's going on with him. So in terms of six men getting sick, I feel I've, I've seen that, that film various times. But watching it this time, I actually felt nauseous. I don't know what exactly was different, but I feel like the, the siren and the imagery, like I remember, I, I guess around the third or fourth revolution of it, kind of counting like, oh God, when is this going to be over? Like it really, it really made me sick. And that was the first time it, it ever had that effect on me. I guess part of the reason body horror is so interesting as well is specifically for what you said, right? Like the idea of externalizing emotion I think actually seeing representation of that in like a physical form is very, very upsetting to me. Something I was kind of wondering while I was watching was whether the child actor in this movie had a stunt double just because some of those scenes were kind of intense with, well, I mean, with the body horror, I I, like that seems easy enough that they can stage without like it being scary for him or harmful or they could use a dummy or something like that but um when his his father 
physically punishes him, for example, that looks really scary. And I kept looking at it to see if, like, is that a dummy? I was like, no, that's a person. But is that, like, a a, a stunt double? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know anything about that? So I didn't see anything about that in my research about how they accomplish those shots. But I had, I had that same reaction, particularly the sequence where the father is, like, finds out that the boy wet his bed and is rubbing his face in it. And we cut to the shot of the boy just being held over it, kind of levitating over the urine. But it's clear that it's not like a still, right? Like it's a it's live action, but they're just holding the boy still. And I had the, that same kind of reaction. Like this kind of, you know, kind of seems like child abuse. This is This would be a really terrible thing to put your child through. I was reading about the making of that movie, The Witch where you have the those Puritan types who leave their settlement and go live in the wilderness, and then there's, like, witchy stuff going on. And they have the one... One of the characters is the son, and so the actor must have been late elementary, early middle school age or something, and they had um, some scenes that they had to film that were, I guess, sexually suggestive involving him. And then I was reading how the other actors work to help him give the performance they need him while keeping him naive about the real meaning he was transmitting. I always wondered how they handle that in situations like these. I think the tragic thing is typically they just don't, um, would be my guess. There's just kind of an indifference. But there are occasions like uh, the most famous one i think or the the one you'll hear the most from pop culture is um the little boy who played danny in the shining he did interviews and he said that it wasn't until an he was an adult that he found out that he was in a horror movie because apparently kubrick and like the rest of the crew took great pains to try and make sure that he didn't realize like what the context of each shot was oh so they did a good job then huh yeah, uh, I mean, I think there was a real interesting instance of Stanley Kubrick being concerned for the child, but totally indifferent to the, I believe, octogenarian actor, Scatman Crothers, who was, who was uh, playing, I can't remember the character's name, but kind of the older, the the Overlook Hotel's uh, care, caretaker. He was in various ways kind of abused by Kubrick, as was Shelley Duvall. I, I always think of... Um... Sorry, what what is the name of the actress who played the little girl in The Exorcist? She had Linda Blair. psychological Linda Blair, right? She had psychological problems after making that movie very famously. That's also we had talked about um uh William Friedkin, that director. He was the same one who was like, We're gonna do eighty and a thirty to get this shot of a uh, car chase in uh the French connection. So mm-hmm. um that guy kind of didn't care who got hurt kind of while we're on the topic Jodie Foster was in the film the Martin Scorsese film Taxi Driver and in it she played a child prostitute and apparently take this with a grain of salt because this is one of those like I remember I read it somewhere but kind of who knows the director had her like meet with a a psychologist multiple times to like make sure that she wasn't like kind of haunted by by those elements of the film right that she would be okay mental health wise with it i think the lesson from this whole discussion is that if your parent and you're thinking about having your kid act don't do it that's the dumbest thing you could ever do don't keep your kid away from hollywood i love movies but like don't ever let your child be anywhere near hollywood 
next up in themes, I'd like to talk about the element of like the creation myth. Both of the films that we watched had the non-traditional, I suppose, formation of humans. So in Six Men Getting Sick, we see two of the men, these lines come out of their mouths and form uh, the sixth man. And in The Grandmother, uh, we have, you know, the humans being grown out of the earth and, like, forming a, a child who grows out of the earth who later, like, plants a seed and grows a grandmother. And this is also something that um that reoccurs later in Lynch's oeuvre, particularly in the film Eraserhead. Uh, there's a really spoilers for that film, I suppose. There's a kind of famous shot at the beginning of that film of uh the kind of machinist in the center of the earth who is like moving these gears that keep it rotating, right? The idea of this this non-traditional origin of of humanity. In these films, or I guess more so in The Grandmother, we have a couple of recognizable elements of our society. In Six Men Getting Sick, we have one of their stomachs is represented by an x-ray, right? So that, you know, signifying kind of like human life, we understand x-ray, an x-ray is being a, a symbol of technology and medicine and advancement and everything but they still the figures still exist in this odd void similarly in the grandmother we have these elements the uh, the father wearing a tank top the mother in this 50s dress these kind of sparse 50s furnishings but in both of these cases we don't get the greater society we don't get the context of how these things came to be they're almost presented as like a natural element in this void. What sort of effect do you think this this has? And what myths of creation do we have today? We always think of creation myth, or at least I always think of it as being like, you know, kind of Greek mythology, ancient. Um, but like what what new stories are we telling each other about like the formation of humans? Well, as far as the effect that this had where in the film there's no connection really with the outside world, it gave you an an, ice, an isolated feeling and along with all the other effects in this movie, a uh, dreamlike quality. And as far as your second question, what kind of myths do you, we have today? I, I have a hard time thinking of something contemporary that has to do with the origin of people but i think we see a lot of creation mythology as far as how the creation of the united states gets represented in the media the mythology of being american gets represented over and over and over in media and hollywood um, and I guess a good example right now is Hamilton, which got released recently where you could watch the whole musical filmed. Um, and that's been controversial for a lot of reasons. That's what comes to mind. I think that's a really interesting point because I think I'll, I'll admit it's kind of an abstract and difficult question. But that's kind of what I was wondering about in the sense that, well, we have established religions, obviously. We have kind of Christian teachings about like the origin of man and whatnot and, and other religious teachings about these subjects but we don't really have that imagination i think it's really interesting that you bring up 
uh, Hamilton and the imagination about the creation of the United States because it also emphasizes the United States as being in some ways like a a religious practice the idea that like oh well we're the greatest nation on the planet earth i mean that can be nothing but a religious viewpoint because like all you know especially now all evidence to the contrary uh so i wonder if that's if that's kind of not where that creative energy went what what you're saying is ba- basically that society in the united states is pretty secularized of course there's a lot of people who are still religious but their religious traditions are more or less the same that we've had around for thousands of years and for the rest of us who are non-religious who believe in science i guess what's the new religion for some of us it's um nationalism maybe segueing off that conversation i'd like to talk more specifically about the notion of americana uh particularly in the grandmother uh so as i mentioned before several times like everyone's kind of dressed in this 50s the honeymooners kind of style right and the you know the son being in a suit it's almost kind of a father knows best type like oh you know the son living up to to kind of the masculine expectation i think very clearly lynch is interested in in this subject it it occurs in several works from him uh twin peaks is very clearly alluding to a lot of like 50s like culture and lifestyle um blue velvet absolutely from kind of the literally the first shot of that film so i did want to say that like kind of critiquing america and like the notion like americana the notion of the united states is not an especially novel take uh i think it may have been more novel at the time something like the grandmother came out in 1970 uh which was actually uh before the bicentennial right so this may have been kind of more of a hot topic but this is certainly something that has been covered in other works of art what if anything do you see in this film that strikes you as as a uh, novel in its criticism or or you know if you want to say maybe it's not criticizing it what what do you think it's maybe saying well before i answer this question i was kind of wondering what you thought the specific critiques are in this film I think we've kind of described it and you can guess, but just to outline it in concrete terms. Um, Something uh, that comes up predominantly in Blue Velvet is this idea that like the 50s being this really, really kind of pleasant, nice dressing. And then literally the first shot of that film, it shows the suburbs and like how nice it is. And then the camera kind of descends underground and you just see these like piles of bugs. Right. So this idea that it's like, it's this kind of thin veneer over, uh, all this horror. And I think in the grandmother, it's kind of a similar thing, but kind of from the other angle where we approach it from the horror element first and then we see that like the set dressing that is, you know, symbols of maybe, especially if you're watching in 1970, maybe you remember these styles from childhood, but you're seeing them in this kind of horrific way. So my guess would be this kind of trying to shed light on the idea that there's 
you know, abuse and violence and like all these social problems that kind of always existed. They too exist in the suburbs as well, right? In this idea of like mother, father, nuclear family, Americana, etc. For me, most critiques that I've seen are embedded in quote unquote realistic dramas rather than surrealist films. Um, or even something like what we talked about last week, the the goofy George Geef shorts, right? I mean, obviously you have an anthropomorphic dog playing the role of um, suburbanite. I guess to this point, that's possibly the least realistic representation that I've seen, right? There, I think there's so many uh, dramas that touch on these issues. Um, so, Something that's really famous from recent years is Mad Men, which, of course, starts in 1960, which would have been the tail end of this period. And then, of course, shows how society changes throughout the the subsequent decade. But it does touch on a lot of issues that um, families and children faced in that period. I just think everything else that I've seen before has been very straightforward, right? Realistic. Here's a family. And you can see all the problems and not like body horror, not mixed media. Right. Right. I suppose, I guess uh, millennials also might be most familiar with maybe the first couple of seasons of the Seth MacFarlane uh, animated sitcom American dad, which uh, from my understanding that went in all kinds of different directions, but like initially started off as a pretty clear, like satire of, of Bush politics and kind of this again, nuclear family. Um, Rumsfeld. (laughs) Do you remember that? I I always remember that from that show. (laughs) I was wondering if you had any final thoughts on these two films or kind of more broadly, like shorts as a form, as opposed to like kind of 90 minute, 90 to 120 minute full lengths that we're accustomed to. I think I wish that people had more ways to watch shorts. I feel like we generally have a choice between feature length film or TV series. And maybe the only exposure people regularly get to shorts are like the cartoon shorts where you have kids TV where it's a 30 minute block and then it's split into two 15 minute chunks, you know, less advertising. That seems to be the only way that people see shorts really regularly. Um, But I think they're a great medium for ideas that don't need a feature length film. Right. I totally agree. I think there are a lot of examples of feature length films or also um, television, like, you know, TV series that could have been a 90 minute movie and the 90 minute films that could have been like a 20 minute short. Stranger Things could have been a single film that we all forgot about 10 minutes later. It's interesting because like because of streaming and YouTube and like the the massively different way that we see media now, we're kind of uniquely positioned for shorts to be seen as kind of their own thing to be appreciated in their own way. And I think there are a lot of things that you can accomplish with shorts that you can't do in kind of like longer form pieces. That all is to say that like short films are certainly worthy of your attention. Um, I think there are like there are a ton of shorts even up on YouTube, a ton of classic shorts. Uh, I haven't checked, but they probably have Unchin Andalou, which is uh, 
Luis Buñuel and Salvador Dali's film, which is like incredibly, incredibly important, especially if you're interested in the surrealist elements of David Lynch's work. If that's available on there, uh, definitely check it out. So this is something that also I hope we come back to um, because I think there are a lot of really great short films out there that deserve attention. I'd like to reference my sources. First off, a uh, People magazine article titled And the Winner is Alan Splett, who became a household word by skipping the Oscars. Uh, You can imagine what that's about. Also, the interview with David Lynch, uh, conducted by Rory Carroll, which appeared in The Guardian. Uh, The chapter wrapped in plastic from the book David Lynch, written by Justin Nyland. And Wikipedia and IMDb were also tremendously helpful. You can reach us on social media at Mayday Matinee on Twitter, maybe today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram. You can send us an email, maybe today Matinee at gmail.com. And if you want to support us so that we can continue making this show, check out Patreon. We are Maybe Today Matinee. On the Patreon feed for the show, uh, we are going to be doing the David Lynch 2001 film Mulholland Drive. Uh, So that'll be a lot of fun. I hope you check that out on Patreon. For next week's regular feed episode, we're going to begin our theme of costuming and makeup. First off, we're going to be covering the 1966 film Amrapali by Lech Tundon. As always, I am David. I am Monica. And this is Maybe Today Matinee.